How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy, you go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Lenore Corneille remembers loving the man Thomas Webb was. The man who enjoyed tennis and hiking. The chiropractor who made connections with his patients. The thinker who loved nature and had a deep knowledge of the world. And then, in October of 2018, Tom was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. Uncurable and terminal. Lenore watched helpless, as the cancer transformed her partner in the few months he had left to live. He couldn't really eat. And what he did, he vomited, and that made his symptoms even worse, his pain worse. He would moan most of the night, and um, sometimes tears would just be streaming down his face. It was very hard to see for someone, you know, that you cared about. Very hard. Tom was in severe pain. He was given narcotics, but refused to take them. They gave him brain fog, and he wanted to remain lucid. What he really wanted was a different kind of medication. He wanted a doctor to be able to prescribe him life-ending drugs so that he could die at home, in peace, and on his terms. But Tom lived in Nevada, a state where medical aid in dying is not yet legal. I felt very helpless, very frustrated in a lot of ways. I even researched other states to see if um, I could get some medical assistance, but all the states have a residency requirement, and I knew that he didn't have enough time to make a residency requirement. And so we, you know, We just dealt with it the best we could. The pain got worse, unbearable. And in the end, Tom did die at home. But it wasn't in peace and not the way he wanted. I came back to his house to take care of him for the evening after work, and I couldn't find him at first. So I literally ran through the whole house, looking in closets. That's when I saw the bullets, and that's when I saw the note, and then I had to try to figure out where else he could be, and it ended up he shot himself in his car in the garage.
it was a difficult thing to come across and it would have been so much better for both of us if his life could have ended as he chose a different way with somebody there who cared about him holding his hand instead of alone i just think sometimes we need to allow someone to make that decision when the pain is so severe there is no hope that anything else is going to help and to have them exist in that manner for a prolonged period of time it just shouldn't be done we don't do it to our animals we allow our animals to have a more dignified death than we do fellow humans Lenore Corneal her partner Dr. F Thomas Webb killed himself on November 8th 2018 he was 70 and lived in Reno, Nevada. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Just last week, the Nevada State Legislature passed Senate Bill 239, the End of Life Options Act. After contentious debate and a narrow vote, the bill now goes to Governor Joe Lombardo's desk. This is the fifth time a medical aid in dying bill has been debated in Nevada, and it's the first time it's made it to the governor's office. But it's unclear if Lombardo will sign the bill. If he does, it will make Nevada the 12th jurisdiction to pass a law allowing terminally ill patients to seek physician-prescribed medications to end their lives. Also this year... Vermont passed a law allowing out-of-state residents to come to Vermont to seek this form of -of end-of-life treatment. Currently, 10 states and Washington, D.C. have such laws on the books. That's three times as many as just five years ago. But the option also remains highly controversial in this country. In California, a major court case is challenging that state's law. So how have beliefs and attitudes changed about medical aid in dying in this country over the past several decades? It was back in the 1990s when Dr. Jack Kevorkian was called Dr. Death and spent eight years in prison for second-degree murder in association with providing life-ending medications to 130 patients. So what has changed and what hasn't between then and now? Well, Dr. Diana Barnard is a family medicine doctor in Vermont with specialties in hospice and palliative care, and she actually sued the state to drop its residency requirement, claiming it was unconstitutional. And as noted, Vermont has done so. Dr. Barnard, welcome to On Point. Thank you very much, Magna. It's a pleasure to be here. How long have you been uh, a physician? 29 years. 29 years. And... How long of that period of time have you focused on uh, hospice and palliative care? Uh, The last 15 years of my career have been dedicated exclusively to caring for patients and families who are living with serious illness. What what prompted you to make that shift to to that focus? Well, um, medicine, like many things in life, changes quickly. And I was drawn into medicine in order to be able to listen to people's values and offer my expertise and work together to develop a plan for how to care for them that was consistent with their own values. And I began to see that people living with serious illness were not being well served by a medical system that was rapidly changing, 
with more technology, more drugs, more tests, and less time to really be present with people. And so I decided I would do something about it and work to increase my skills in meeting those needs. Mm. Um, but in terms of becoming an advocate for medical aid in dying, um, I wonder, I mean, you must recall when I mentioned Dr. Kevorkian uh, in the open here. I mean, it, it was not that long ago, not that long before you um, switched to palliative and uh, and hospice care that, you know, he went to prison uh, for for assisting people um, as they sought uh, their deaths while being terminally ill. Do, do you recall that time? I do recall that time, although I think about that being something very different than what we're talking about today. I, I do recall when I first um, got a message from a local newspaper um, talking about a couple of retired individuals living in Vermont who were interested in passing a medical aid and dying bill in Vermont and asking what I thought about it. And as I considered and I thought about my patients, I thought, you know, patients really should be in control. Patients want options. And so supporting a bill like this seemed natural. And it actually preceded my transition to being a hospice and palliative care physician. I see. Okay. I mean, I had asked because to me, that's, these are sort of not necessarily bookends, but, uh, but um, moments that describe a sort of ch maybe change in the legal uh, approach to medical aid in dying, but but from a from a, a, a physician's perspective, I mean, you have been in attendance um, as uh, patients have administered self-administered um, life-ending medication. Can you describe what that's like? Yes, I. Um, you know, it's. Um, it's very humbling um, to do this work, and I like to say even I am here with my voice today as a physician. I'm really here speaking on behalf of patients and families who, who really are suffering and who want options. Um, every, every death is unique. Every life is unique, and people have individual challenges and individual hopes and fears. But I will say, when, when I talk to people who are nearing the end of their lives, you know, the three common themes that come up are people would like to be at home, they would like to be surrounded by family and loved ones, and they want to be peaceful or comfortable, however they describe that, either in spirit or in body or both. And, you know, I will say for those deaths that I've attended, for people utilizing medical aid and dying, they are incredibly peaceful and people have those three simple wishes and it, it can be a beautiful moment and experience. Hmm. And briefly describe what uh, a person has to do in order to um, access uh, medical aid and dying in Vermont. Well, in order to be eligible, a person has to be uh, over the age of 18, and you have to be living with a terminal illness, and you have to have been given a prognosis, which is an estimate of how long you have to live of less than six months, and you have to go through a careful process with many safeguards uh, to assure that you have thought carefully about what you are asking for, that you have sought alternatives and the best possible end-of-life care so that your suffering is managed and you might not need to move forward. You have to see uh, two different physicians who each make their own assessment of your understanding of the law 
And you have to be able to go through this process on a voluntary basis. You can stop it at any time. The patient is in charge and the patient must be able to self-administer in the end as a final confirmation that the whole process is driven by the patient. Mm. Has, have you ever had a patient who requested it who was denied? Well, many people um, express interest in this earlier in their um, illness. So some people ask when they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness because they want to be aware of their options. You know, some people are planners and just like they're thinking about their second or third line chemo, if they've been diagnosed with a cancer, they also want to hear about their plans for what happens when their illness progresses. Um, and then there are some people who have diminished capacity, whose illness is either too rapidly progressive or they might not be able to maintain their capacity mm. through the whole process. And in that case, we look for other ways to address suffering. Well, today we're talking about medical aid in dying in this country and what has and hasn't changed over the past several decades as more states are considering passing such laws. We'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point listener Bill Rogers of Arizona, who left us a message talking about his wife's passing this past February. On Sunday morning with my son and I over her bed, she said, help me, please help me, which told me that she was well aware of what was going on in her body. She passed away the next day at 425 in the afternoon. I just don't believe that it was right that she had to suffer through this struggling that could have been greatly eased with medical aid in dying. My beautiful wife of 53 years deserved the option to pass away peacefully with compassion and dignity. She didn't get that. Bill also told us that his wife had been suffering from terminal cancer and wanted to access medical aid in dying, but by virtue of living in Arizona, could not because it is not legal there. Here's listener Susan, who left us a message uh, from Massachusetts, also talking about a friend who moved to Arizona and got terminal cancer. He did not want to suffer 
extensively, but since Arizona does not have medical aid in dying, her friend resorted to a different option. He wanted to leave the world with dignity, and he said that chemotherapy made him not himself, made him lose his humanity. Unfortunately, Arizona is not a uh, state that has physician-assisted suicide, if you will. So what he did in hospice was he went on hunger strike. He did not expect to kill himself through hunger. What he was trying to do was to weaken his own body such that the cancer will spread faster and will take him sooner. Dr. Diana Barnard, I wonder if in hearing these stories, and we received so many of them from listeners, that people seek medical aid in dying because what we're really looking at is a failure of the hospital system. Because so many people who die in hospitals still die in pain. They die not surrounded by all of their loved ones in an environment that they uh, don't find gives them peace. Would they seek medical aid in dying if the hospital experience were better? Well, I I always like to think about um, we need lots of tools in our toolbox. We need to do many things simultaneously. And the the issue of the hospital is tricky because uh, the vast majority of patients I listen to and work with want to live. They are desperate to live. And if going to the hospital can help them live, people will go through a certain amount of burden and suffering to get to a better place. It's really only when people must accept that they are dying that some people want a different way of going about it and want to take some control back from the disease that has taken so much from them. This is not a process that is for everybody. I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, The laws that are in place protect the rights of people for whom this would never be the right choice. It protects those who aren't sure or, or can't predict what kind of suffering they may face at the end of their life. And it offers comfort for those who are interested. Mm. Well, I'm struck, though, by how often one particular word is used when people were talking to us about medical aid and dying, and that's dignity. Dignity, dignity, dignity. Because dying in America can be such an undignified uh, experience, not just for the person who's passing away, but for everyone surrounding them who loves them. Uh, And so... With that in mind, I want to introduce Katie Engelhart into the conversation. She's the author of a book called The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die. And it's based on hundreds of interviews with doctors and people seeking to end their lives both legally and not legally. Katie, welcome to On Point. Thanks so much for having me. So can you describe you know, in a, in a story that, that you, you reveal in the book about the lengths that some people might go to uh, to, you know, plan for their own deaths in the event that they become terminally ill in places where they can't access medical aid in dying? Mm-hmm. So my book opens with the story of a woman named Betty, who I should say I met by happenstance. I wasn't seeking to interview her in any way. We met at a wedding. I mentioned this book that I was writing and she kind of took me aside and said, look, I I have a really good story for you. She said, my friends and I, Betty was in her late seventies. She said, my friends and I have, have a pact. The first one who gets Alzheimer's 
gets killed by the rest of us. And the story Betty told involved a very strange trip. Betty was a retired lawyer. She was um, a Manhattan resident, sort of, um, you know, well put together, definitely not a rule breaker. Um, The story she told involved her traveling to Mexico to a place close to Tijuana, where she had heard veterinarians will sell you drugs used for euthanizing pets on the sly. And she made that trip to buy some drugs. She snuck them back over the border using some fake cosmetics bottles. And those drugs were then held in trust by her and her friends to be used when the time arrives. Um, So Betty's story is interesting because, first of all, she was living in New York, which at the time had, you know, and, and, and has no medical aid in dying law. But also, she held the drugs for use in a very particular context. She worried that she would develop dementia. And, and that's a fair worry because, um, you know, it's a disease that past 80 afflicts a significant percentage of people. And even if medical aid in dying were legal where she lived, it most likely wouldn't uh, apply to someone who has Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So um, Betty's story was interesting to me in part because I just met so many people like her, people who were very afraid, who wanted to be in control at the end of their lives, and who were going to these elaborate, um, through these elaborate kind of plans to get access to drugs, including buying drugs on the internet, traveling to Mexico or Brazil, um, including, you know, kind of playing pharmacist and, and, and mixing various uh medications or substances that they read about online. This is not uncommon. I was actually shocked to see just how many people are making plans on their own terms in the absence of a law that leaves them feeling safe and prepared. And so why do you think that is? Is it because of um, their fear of how they might end up dying? I think it's a few things. I think, you know, what do we know about the end of life in the United States. We know it's a time of uh, great medical intervention when it shouldn't be, you know, about a third of American healthcare costs are spent on people at the last year of their lives. And that means that people at the end of their lives are going in and out of hospital. They're receiving high level interventions, which ultimately in many cases are futile. And people know that. How many of us have watched a parent or grandparent die in a way that was kind of confusing, overly medicalized, didn't quite feel dignified, didn't quite feel like anything we had control over. I mean, I think a lot of us have watched bad deaths. And by bad deaths, I sort of mean normal deaths. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then I think, you know, there's also other kind of cultural explanations. People have pointed to the fact that baby boomers as a, you know, stereotypical quality, you know, they're used to being in control. Um, They have resources to get what they want. And they're the, the cohort that's coming up to you know, advanced age, and 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 they are looking for something else. Yeah. Well, so we're going to talk a little bit more about who is able to access medical aid in dying in the states where where they can. But Katie, since you brought up uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, this is a really mm-hmm. major aspect of the, the current questions over um, medical aid in dying in states where it's still where it's being debated, and it's fascinating to me uh, because. In 1990, the first patient to request that Dr. Jack Kevorkian 
um, aid her in ending her life was Janet Adkins. She was that Oregon teacher who had early Alzheimer's. And so she was the first patient to... uh, he assisted um, with her with her suicide. She was mentally competent at the time, but she had early Alzheimer's. And decades later, actually, in the process of preparing for this show, we got another call from an Oregonian. This is Andrew Russo of Portland, Oregon. And he says he's seen many family members and older friends suffer from Alzheimer's and dementia. And he says he does not want that same fate. And I've seen not only the pain and suffering it causes them as their mental wellness degrades, but also the people that care about them. There are burdens on their finances, there are burdens on their mental health, and there are just physical burdens from caring for them. I would never wish that upon anybody. And I've already communicated to my family that if I should get dementia or Alzheimer's, I don't want to put them through that and will end my life with medical aid. Except in Oregon, he can't because in 1997, Mm. right, Oregon became the first state to pass medical aid in dying. But its Death with Dignity Act does not allow for patients with Alzheimer's or dementia diagnoses to choose that option. Dr. Barnard, Mm. let me me turn back to you here. Um, Is that also true? Uh, in Vermont, and how does this this huge specter, this looming specter of perhaps tens of millions of Americans that may um, receive an Alzheimer's or dementia diagnosis factor into the ongoing debate over medical aid in dying? Yeah, it, it, thanks for that question, Magna. I think it's, you know, uh, we need to remember that death is universal and it will happen to all of us. And our society isn't very um, open to accepting that and talking about the tough things. You, you mentioned earlier that perhaps part of the problem is what happens when people end up in the hospital and have an over-medicalized experience in the setting of serious illness. Um, another way to look at that is that we are where we are because of the successes in medicine. We have helped prevent deaths from accidents or infectious diseases. We have helped people live through strokes or survive heart attacks. And what's happened is that we are saving lives and prolonging life. But what happens is that the longer you live, the more likely it is that the final phase of your life will be complicated Mm -hmm. by um, cognitive impairment or by weakness or your ability to really live life on your own terms. And so we've we've kind of created a challenge. And now you're hearing patients and people asking of the medical system to meet those challenges Right. Well, so so to be clear, for most of the medical aid and dying laws in states, it has to happen when you receive a terminal diagnosis, right? And you have to have a very finite period of time um, left to live, according to what a, a, the prognosis is. That is not how dementia or Alzheimer's works, right? And so, Katie, you talked about uh, Betty in New York and her pact, and they would uh, assist each other in dying when they knew the time had come. I mean, how how do they? How would they know the time had come if they receive mm-hmm. an, al- an Alzheimer's diagnosis and could still potentially have many years of life ahead of them? Mm-hmm. I think this is the big kind of unspoken subject within right to die advocacy in the United States. There is no American state that allows medical aid in dying for people, primarily who have dementia. And there's no advocacy group, no major advocacy group that's asking for it. But the situation is very different in other countries. So I spent some time in Belgium and the Netherlands. The Netherlands in particular does allow 
um, assisted death for people with dementia, but it's very tricky. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, let's compare those two countries. In Belgium, you can have an assisted death for dementia, but only if you retain mental capacity to make the choice for yourself. You have to be able to know what you want and ask for it on the day. This effectively means that you can get an assisted death only in the very early stages when potentially you have many years of life ahead of you Mm -hmm. and potentially even some good years of life ahead of you. You make the decision early on and people do it because they're afraid of going so far and then losing their chance. Mm. In the Netherlands, a person can write a kind of advanced directive. They can say, when I get to such and such a stage, say I can't take care of myself and I don't recognize my husband... I would like to receive assisted death. But that's tricky too, because it's asking an awful lot of physicians. Uh It is asking a physician to give a lethal injection to someone who at the time maybe has no idea that her death is coming, that she ever asked for it, who might in fact at the time be living a sort of content, happy life without most of her long-term memories. So there's no sort of easy way to do it. But I will say that when I spoke to people, you know, in in states where aid and dying was and was not legal, I mean, dementia was the thing that everyone raised, Mm -hmm. that everyone was afraid of. So I do think there's this kind of gap between what people who want assisted death to be legalized are asking for and kind of what the major advocacy groups and lawmakers who support it are prepared to discuss. Well, yeah, because it's very messy. Yeah, it's such a challenging and nuanced um, uh, illness, right? Because it has to do with sense of self, with memory, with, you know, how do you decide, how does one decide for themselves that the time is is right if mm-hmm. they're not, you know, necessarily um, uh, capable of doing so because they don't retain the memories of the life they had. I mean, Dr. Barnard, let me lean on your experience as a, as a hospice um, physician as well, because as far as I know, in the United States, people with Alzheimer's or dementia diagnoses early on, while they're still mentally competent, can sign advanced medical directives, right, regarding that uh, maybe in the end stages of de- their dementia, they wouldn't want a feeding tube or a ventilator or dialysis or those very sort of well-defined hospital interventions to extend life. So someone would have to follow that directive and turn off the machines. How is that different from perhaps signing a a medical aid in dying consent form while still mentally competent and having a physician then um, administer the life-ending drugs at the end of the person with dementia's life, Dr. Barnard? Yeah, there's there's so much there to unpack. And I, I do feel the need to say that um, what we're talking about is what I like to call a rainbow of experiences. And for there are people living with dementia. There are people caring for loved ones with dementia whose life looks very different than it did, who still find meaning and want to prolong life and And we support that as a society, as a medical system, certainly as a palliative care physician. I'm listening deeply to individual values and supporting that. There are other people on the other end of the rainbow, as I like to say, who 
who find the concept of losing control and losing their mental abilities to be one of the most frightening things. And no doubt for those people, medical aid in dying is not the answer. We, you know, medical aid in dying is a balance of safeguards to be sure it's driven by the patient and voluntary. And it has some barriers because not everyone who would like to access it can. And so this is a balancing act that we need to address going forward. Mm. Well, we're talking about medical aid in dying in the United States and uh, currently 11 jurisdictions, that's 10 states in Washington, D.C., have such laws on the books. Many more states are considering it. And when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about why there's been an uptick, a pretty strong uptick in the number of states uh, that have passed laws about this very recently. So that's in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is On Point listener Jessica Simon, who called us from Maryland. I have a 72-year-old father with Parkinson's who would very much like to have control over his death. We live in Maryland, very close to Washington, D.C., and we have been discussing for months whether or not I should move him into Washington, D.C., where they have a Death with Dignity Act so that he can then have more control over how things go in the last year of his life. So Washington, D.C. and 10 states are currently the 11 jurisdictions in the United States that allow for medical aid in dying. Many other states are considering similar legislation right now. And of the 10 states that recently passed the laws or that passed the laws, many of them were quite recent. So why the sudden uptick over the past five years? Well, Kim Callanan is the president and CEO of Compassion and Choices. It's an advocacy group for expanding end-of-life options. And she says one of the biggest changes that happened in recent years is a shift in the medical community itself. So back in 2015, most of the medical societies had oppositional policies around medical aid and dying. And um, I think we're we're up around 30 or so national and state medical societies that have dropped their opposition and then also increased support among individual doctors as well. And that's made a huge difference. And that comes because individuals are putting pressure on their own doctors, are asking questions, are wanting this as an option. And the medical societies and doctors are starting to recognize that people see this as a fundamental part of the treatment options that they want available to them at the end of life. 
So, Dr. Barnard, help us understand this, because, of course, in the most rudimentary sense, uh, the ultimate violation of the do-no-harm oath is to prescribe medication that can help end someone's life. So how did this shift happen in, um, you know, the thinking in many of the the medical societies in this country? Well, I I think even that statement, do-no-harm, looks very complicated in the middle of a modern medical system that, in fact, can sometimes do harm to patients by offering them treatments and prolonging their lives in a state that has lost much of its meaning. Um, I think we need... uh, It's because medicine is changing and, and patients, as you heard from Kim and as you heard from Katie, patients are really the ones who are driving this, who are surprised by how complicated medical care gets toward the end of life and that their basic wishes of wanting to be comfortable and wanting to be at home are harder to achieve than they ever imagined. And so they're the ones that are really driving this movement. Mm. Katie Englehart, let me ask you about that because I wonder um, how you were able to explore this issue in in your book, The Inevitable, because, Mm -hmm. you know, doctors are trained understandably, to find ways to keep people alive, to keep, mm-hmm. ideally to keep them healthy and alive. But, mm-hmm. you know, you're always presented initially with options of we can do A, B, and C, don't know, the, can't guarantee the outcomes, but these are the options that we have. Did you talk to physicians in terms of um, how they grapple with the thinking around one of the options could potentially be um, medical aid in dying? Mm-hmm. You know, I spoke with a lot of palliative care physicians. And they are people who, you know, kind of specialize in comfort care. They do a lot of end of life care. They're not exclusively. And what was interesting is at the beginning, you know, when Oregon first passed its law in the nineties, the palliative care physician community was by and large, very against the legislation. And when I spoke with doctors, they, they usually said some, something along the lines of, look, I'm good at what I do. I know how to alleviate pain and suffering. Like we can help people to live kind of pain-free death, you know, lives until the very end. Um, But eventually I think palliative care physicians came around and um, they started to see medical aid in dying, not as this complete separate radical thing, but as just sort of you know, one step further along the spectrum of the care that they already offered. You know, palliative care physicians already do things like, you know, administer drugs that have a sedating effect on people at the ends of their lives. So a a patient might sort of be drifting in and out of sleep and then be sleeping and then kind of die uh, eventually of kidney failure or whatever it is after a few days of of slumber. I mean, physicians already do things that sort of mm. hasten death or hasten a person's, you know, final uh, awake and conscious hours. So these physicians started to see it as just another step on that path. Um, I do think what helped is that Oregon was very good about collecting data. So, um, you know, at the beginning, there was a lot of fear that people who were poor, people from minority or immigrant communities would be sort of coerced into hastening their deaths for, you know, socioeconomic reasons because they didn't want to be a burden because they couldn't afford better care. And what we started seeing from Oregon was that 
that really wasn't true. It was I mean, the exact opposite, it, pretty much. It was the exact opposite. The average person who, you know, chooses medical aid and dying in Oregon is, you know, over 60, educated, white, insured. Um, and, and so we weren't sort of seeing what physicians feared most. And I think that really helped people um, is that that kind of data collection. Mm-hmm. And what we saw too from Oregon was that by and large, patients were not choosing assisted death because they were in pain, you know, because they were physically suffering for lack of, you know, good medical care. They were choosing it for more existential reasons. They wanted to maintain autonomy. They didn't want to um, sort of be physically dependent on caregivers. They wanted to, um, they didn't want to live if they couldn't do things that they enjoyed. Um, I think that really helped to bring doctors around. Mm-hmm. Well, so... Uh, with even with all these changes, right, and this uptick in the past five years in the number of states that allow it, uh, there are still, what, 80 percent of states that, that do not. Um, Vermont just recently, you know, lifted its residency requirement to access medical aid in dying. But, you know, it's a, it's a little challenging. You can imagine the challenges in doing so if you're also terminally ill and at the end of your life. So at uh, with that in mind, I want to share a story with both of you. This is um, it's about Yusef Cohen. He was 64 years old when he was diagnosed with mesothelioma, a form of lung cancer, and he was given just a year and a half to live. He tried chemo, radiation, surgery, clinical trials. Nothing really worked. He was not going to beat his diagnosis. Modern medicine is a mixed blessing. Some cases it's great and saves people, and other cases just keeps people alive for no reason. Just torture. It's just torture. So that's Yusef from a 2016 video recording that he made just four years after his diagnosis. He was wanting to die on his own terms, but he lived in New York City, which doesn't allow medical aid in dying. But that wasn't going to stop him. I don't think of it as suicide. I think of it as, as having no choice. You're going to die anyhow. So it's choosing how you want to die. This seems to me a much more humane way of dying. And Yusuf's wife, Lindsay Wright, was there to help him do it. He really wanted control over how he died. Mesothelioma attacks the lining of the lungs so that eventually you can't breathe in and out and you'll suffocate to death. And he really, he didn't want... He didn't want to suffocate. He didn't want us to watch him suffer. He didn't want to suffer. And so he had researched what his options might be. And we learned about medical aid and dying legislation in Oregon. So we started making phone calls, looking into what we could do and got enough information and did the research to figure out that we would have to go through a number of steps, including establishing residency, and how we would do that. It took a lot of research. And then figuring out how we would transfer medical documents when the time came to do so. So in early March of 2016, we knew because his cancer had come back that his time was limited and we needed to hurry. And we flew out to Oregon in early March and sublet an apartment, established residency in Oregon with his lease the same day and we flew back. I was instantly on the phone 
calling randomly lung cancer physicians trying to identify somebody who could take him on as a patient. You know, I was really struggling. They were giving us appointments three weeks beyond the date that we would be arriving. We're arriving on a Thursday night and we needed an appointment that Friday. So I ended up having a physician friend of mine here in New York City call this physician in Oregon to beg him to see us the day after we arrived. We met with that physician. My husband, Yusuf, made his first request for medical aid and dying medication. Oregon at the time required a 15-day waiting period, and you had to wait then for 15 days to ask again. So we saw the physician for the first time on a Friday, and by Monday, it was clear that Yusuf was really struggling to breathe. Within a couple of days, he was no longer eating. And that's when it became clear that his body was shutting down. And we talked about it, and he said, I'm, I'm dying, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it in time to get the medication. You know, when the doctor tells you you have three months or less to live, you hear the three months. You don't hear the less. He did suffer. He did not want to die of suffocation. Nobody wants to die of suffocation. And I think he also sort of, you know, the anguish of trying so desperately to have some control over how he was dying also was a type of mental suffering. And of course, you blame yourself for not making the move sooner. You know, if only, if only, if only, if only, if we had stayed when we first got to Oregon three weeks earlier, if only we had sort of made all of these arrangements sooner. He died before he could access medical aid and dying in this anonymous sublet apartment that he, you know, would have preferred to do that at New York City and New York City at home in New York City, surrounded by friends and family. And so while this was an option that he wanted to move, to go to another state where he could then control and have a, make a decision over when his life would end and how, I mean, it's certainly not the death that he would have wanted, he would have wanted to have that option in New York State. That was Lindsay Wright. Her husband, Yusuf Cohen, died on March 31st, 2016. Now, it was six years later, in March of 2022, that Oregon lifted its residency requirements to access medical aid in dying. Now, as we've been talking about all hour... Uh, There's been a sharp uptick in the past few years in the number of states that offer medical aid in dying, but most states still do not. In California, where the law currently exists, there's also pushback against medical aid in dying, and it comes from the disability community there. Because last month, disability rights advocates filed suit against California's End-of-Life Options Act, and the lawsuit includes the United Spinal Association, who claim that California's law, quote, unlawfully discriminates by steering people with terminal disabilities towards physician-assisted suicide. Here's lawyer Michael Bean. You know, we perceive people with disabilities sometimes as suffering, suffering with their disability. That's not how my clients want to be perceived. They want to have equal access and opportunities to a free and independent life. 
And in this system, which has so much bias built into it, this particular policy, where there are barriers to the other, quote, options, like palliative care, hospice care, home health care, AIDS, uh, not easy to obtain and long wait lists, to say that the patient can voluntarily choose to commit suicide is cynical and, and, and simply a, a dangerous, dangerous policy. Dr. Barnard, I wonder how you respond to that, because, um, again, plaintiffs in this California lawsuit say that in California, may, you may have to wait months to get a wheelchair or adequate housing or other types of uh, assistance that might help you live a, a happier life. But you only have to wait 48 hours uh, in order to get uh, medicines that might end your life. And that essentially produces a two-tiered medical system, they say. Well, you know, I would say um, it, there's an and statement here. We need more palliative care. We need more support for people living with disabilities. We need more hospice and better and more robust hospice. And we are talking about a different population of people. There is absolutely no evidence that any coercion has happened or that the lives of people living with disabilities are any less valued because of medical aid and dying laws. We are talking about people who are dying and who want to make their own deeply personal decision about maintaining some control over having to accept that their life is coming to an end. Mm -hmm. Well, Katie Englehart, I'm going to give you the last word here today. Um, Even though 80 percent of states still don't have such laws on the books, do you see the momentum continuing in terms of both of the law catching up to relatively high public approval rates for accessing medical aid in dying. Mm -hmm. I do. Look, and I think it comes down to, you know, the point I made earlier, which is that the nightmare scenarios have not played out. I remember coming across an article, I think in the New York Times, just before the Oregon law was passed, and the writer imagined elderly people being driven to the Oregon border and kind of dumped over the border for assisted death. And it just didn't happen. From what we know, from the data, it's still very hard to obtain. You have to really want it. You have to be a person who's able to be proactive and navigate the the medical system, as some of your listeners have pointed out. Um, And so the law has remained really limited. And I think that helps other state legislators because they can say, look at Oregon. Um, This is this has been contained. The slippery slope has not, you Mm -hmm. know, appeared before us. And it's safe for us to proceed. Yeah. Well, Nevada might be next because that bill is sitting on Governor Lombardo's desk there. So we'll see. Katie Engelhart, author of The Inevitable, Dispatches on the Right to Die. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Diana Barnard, family medicine doctor with specialties in hospice and palliative care. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is On Point.